0: Welcome to the Viewpoints podcast with your host Henry Grossack. Welcome to Viewpoints listeners. I'm your host Henry Grossack. It's me great pleasure to welcome regular guests back to Viewpoints Paul Monk, PhD who's an author speaker, workshop facilitator, and many other things too. But uh, welcome again to Viewpoints Paul Monk.
1: G'day, no, Henry. Thanks. It's great to be with you.
0: Absolutely. Now, your PhD, we've never spoken about that. What did you get that in?
1: Oh, oh pardon me. That was in international relations. That's a long time ago now. That was back in the 1980s. And uh, it was a study of U.S. counterinsurgency strategy throughout the Cold War in Southeast Asia and Central America. So it was um, it was a big project and took a lot of work, but I learned, learned a great deal. Um, and... Uh, along with my studies in European history as an undergraduate, um, you know, it it stood me in good stead to grapple with all the uncertainties and troubles of our time, I think.
0: Mm. I was thinking of that um, when I've been watching, and we're just digressing a moment, Uh, we've found found, um, a a show, a five-season show, a French show, which uh, segues into that in in a fictional sense, Paul, and it's called uh, The Bureau, and it's about uh, it's very popular um it's had 5 seasons and it's set in basically modern day spain as uh, modern day spain modern day france and it's about um uh, very realistic uh, espionage agencies in the middle east russia and america and uh, uh yeah. the, it's it's um it's, it's quite chilling in some ways as to how modern technology is now used by these, these people. It is fictional, but one could readily believe aspects of it. It's certainly not a James Bond type of uh, spy show. Uh, so if you're interested in that sort of thing from your background, it might be worth a, a little dabble. And uh, if you find it interesting, it uh, might be worth yeah. pursuing. Is that on Netflix
1: or where have you been watching it? Sorry. Is that on Netflix or No, you been
0: that's on it? SBS on demand. Okay, the Bureau. Pretty well, yeah, the Bureau. Um yeah, the Bureau. It's a, it's a it's a compelling and um, I find it a very um oh Moorish, if that's the correct word show. Uh, so um we'll we'll talk about that later. But that's not what we're here for today. Um No <laughs> We're here for domestic abuse and coercive control, and, and, and that's certainly uh, an area that uh, has come increasingly under, under the focus in recent times, and I think uh, that's a good thing in terms of having the spotlight on it. Now, you've been reading up on it recently. Tell us, uh, tell us what do those terms mean, because they can mean different things to different people.
1: They can, and uh, in the specialist literature, they tend to be fairly carefully defined. But essentially, what I'm referring to is the domination, verbal or psychological abuse, intrusive, controlling, or actual physical violence, visited in domestic settings, mostly by men on their wives, girlfriends, partners, and/or children. And this has probably been endemic for millennia. But there's as you say, a growing movement against it in our time, and a growing scholarship on its nature, its causes, its consequences, and how to address it, and uh, uh, my understanding is that uh, there's likely to be legislation around coercive control, in particular in the near future, in uh, in this country, um, and so it's something worth keeping one's eye on. Mm.
0: Coercive control—exactly, what does that mean?
1: Well, uh, coercive control takes various forms. Uh, it can um, it can take very, uh, you know, graphic forms, like like chaining up wives or children in. Basements or locking them in the house or not allowing them out, not allowing them to drive, not allowing them to have any access to money. Um, but it can also take, and we might discuss this in a little more detail sure. later, uh, forms of actual high tech surveillance in the most extraordinary way. So there's a great deal going on in that domain.
0: Mm. Now, why have you been reading about them?
1: Well, you know, I, personally, I grew up innocent of any such things. Uh, my parents had a very traditional, very loving marriage. And, I'm certain no abuse of any kind occurred in either direction in their 45 years of marriage. And I didn't know of any such things occurring in families within our extended family, with, with one exception, or among our school friends. In, in more recent years, though, I've grown uncomfortably aware of how widespread this stuff is, And uh, but having many other concerns. I, I didn't pay the issue much attention until this summer. And What's happened this summer is a woman with whom I've been on intimate terms for some months reported to me that her partner had been highly abusive towards her, uh, I won't name the parties for reasons of privacy and indeed legality, but her reports alarmed and angered me so much that I decided to learn more about the phenomenon itself. And what I learned was very disturbing, and it's why I suggested we have this conversation.
0: Yes, because um, as you said earlier on, it's, uh, it's, we, might, we, we all may know of individual cases, but um, there's so many of it out there and much of it remains hidden. So what in particular have you been reading?
1: Well, I, in the context of what's been happening this summer, I asked another woman, friend with whom I've been discussing a case in question, uh, what I should read, and she recommended Jess Hill's 2019 book, See What You Made Me Do, Power, Control and Domestic Abuse. Jess Hill is an investigative journalist um, who some of your listeners may be aware of, who's been writing about domestic violence since 2014. Part of that, she was a producer for ABC Radio. She's been a Middle East correspondent for the Global Mail and an investigative journalist for Background Briefing. She's, uh, she's actually highly regarded. She's won two Walkley Awards and Amnesty International Award and three Our Watch Awards, Our Watch is a body in this country that looks at problems of domestic violence and abuse. So she's good at what she does. I, I wasn't disappointed when I read her book. It's both impressive uh, and deeply thought-provoking. It was published by Inc. And once I'd read the book, cover to cover, I found her 2021 quarterly essay, also published by Inc. The Reckoning, How Me Too is Changing Australia. It was in some ways an even more confronting uh, piece of writing than the book. And what was especially disturbing was the discovery that the case histories and theories that Hill sets out seem to fit the case of my intimate friend like a hand in a glove. I've been pondering that since and wondering what to do.
0: Well, that would be another interesting uh, part of the conversation to which we can segue. The, the key findings of Hill's um, in, in Hill's book?
1: Well, I've named seven. There's a great deal of data and she's clearly consulted many uh, long-term researchers on the issue and it makes very interesting reading. But without going into uh, eye-glazing detail and a short interview like this, I would name seven key conclusions that struck me. One is that in every country around the world, the house, the home, is the most dangerous place for women. Let me quote Hill from page two of her book. Of the 87,000 women killed globally in 2017, that is to say murdered, more than a third, 30,000, were killed by an intimate partner and another 20,000 by a family member. Uh, in Australia, one woman a week is killed by a man she's been intimate with. These statistics tell us something that's almost impossible to grapple with. It's not the monster lurking in the dark, women should fear, but the men they fall in love with. Mm. That's, a really, that's a really striking sense, it seems.
0: And, and it's very chilling, too, because we all like to have this sort of Mythical monster in the dark out there with uh, who is anonymous no, as being yeah mm-hmm. that's the that's the perpetrator of these crimes and yet it's it's qu- generally speaking quite the opposite.
1: Yes, indeed. And, and the second conclusion that I would note is most of the abuse is perpetrated by men who evade scrutiny. In other words, a lot of this goes on, and even uh, other family members or neighbours can be unaware of it. it. It it sort of happens below the radar. For a number of reasons that Hill addresses, the the third is that the problem has been escalating in recent years, Um, and that includes here in Victoria, where by Hill's own account, we have a world-leading program to try and stop it. So there are vectors driving this that seem in some ways intractable, and that's something else very notable and disturbing. The fourth conclusion is that it causes an exodus of women and children from homes into homelessness, and that there is a shortage of refuges for such um, victims of, of this abuse. Uh, and there's clearly a need to address the problem at source, because otherwise you just end up with an endless, even if you're funded an endlessly growing number of refugees, which is not what anybody should want. Uh, the fifth conclusion is that it's not even the physical violence that is the root problem, but psychological abuse, which extends to extraordinary controlling and intimidatory behaviour, uh, which is psychologically damaging and even crippling. The sixth is that the psychology of both victims and perpetrators is complex and riddled with paradoxes that require careful unpicking. That was the single most interesting part of the book. Why is it that women will very often stay with or go back to an abusive partner when one of the thought one would have thought intuitively that they they get the hell out of there? And and let me add, without going into names or as we say, pack drill. That's the case with the intimate friend of mine to whom I've made reference. That she really should leave the guy who's been abusing her, but she finds herself unable and unwilling to do it, which is very disturbing for me. And the seventh conclusion is: in recent years, coercive control has extended the use, as I hinted earlier, of high-tech apps that enable the abuser to monitor the movements, messaging, phone calls, contacts, and browsing histories of their partners or victims. That's you know, it's like the Orwellian state. What they say, the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, turning into individuals in domestic circumstances with this all-out surveillance and coercive control. And um, that's really alarming. I mean, you know, that wasn't possible until a few years ago. So those are the conclusions that I've missed. But there is a great deal else in the book that's well and truly worth reading. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm, It
0: certainly is. we take a short break. Paul, can you hold the line? I certainly can. Welcome back to Viewpoints listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grossick. in the middle of a discussion on domestic abuse and coercive control with Paul Monk, PhD, author, speaker, workshop, facilitator. Welcome back, Paul. Thank you, Annie. Now, we're looking at Hill's key findings and the reasons why you were reading about this um, prior to the break. Uh, Of course, it all begs a number of questions, one of which is why are domestic violence and coercive control mainly what men do to women?
1: This is, a, this is a key subject in the book and one that Hill addresses to her credit with great uh, nuance and sensitivity. But to put it very briefly, since this is a short interview, uh, there are three uh, three reasons that one might identify. One is long-term patriarchy, the male dominance of society as a historical institution. The second is resentment of and reactions against feminism and women's emancipation by men, particularly those who themselves feel somewhat powerless. And the third is uh, the most sort of interesting and complex a sense of humiliation in a certain category of men not feeling sufficiently masculine and given how we define masculinity as being strong and not not sort of um sensitive or emotional it's turned into a kind of demented misogyny and it's vented on women and that's the, that's the really complex and ugly side of it in a way uh, so this is the most complex and contested terrain as a man who's I have many women friends, and I've never been abusive to partner. I find it induces a kind of a horror at what so many men do to, and a kind of what I call moral vertigo. If Hill's telling it straight, what am I to think of myself, simply as a male, as a man, as a citizen? Others have said the same. It produces a kind of crisis of conscience. That the more so, because Hill's abundant evidence indicates that such abusive behaviours are often disguised by their victims and all but invisible to outsiders. So you, you can't always see it around you, you know, um, and she writes, sometimes the victims remain in public and to the rest of the world, her relationship looks perfect. Here she isolates herself by refusing out of shame, view or the desire to protect her partner. to tell anyone about the abuse. She doesn't need to be isolated entirely for coercive control to be affected. Uh, all the abuser needs is for her supportive connections to be damaged or, uh, or removed. If an abuser decides to isolate his victim against her will, the campaign can become extreme hiding car keys, intercepting messages and phone calls, threatening or assaulting friends and family. He may explain his coercive behaviour, possessive behaviour, a sign of his passionate love, or accuse her of cheating. Severing connections with others is the way she can prove she loves him and allay his jealousy. So, the disturbing thing about this passage and many others in Hill's book, for me, is that it is a chillingly close fit with what my intimate friend has described her partner doing to her, all this and more.
0: Absolutely. Now, what were the most shocking things that you learned from reading Jess Hill's book and quarterly essay, given you've outlined some of the things already, uh, Paul? I would
1: name three as the most shocking. The first is the extent of the problem that has been largely hidden uh, and, and its psychological nature, you know, not just physical violence, but Uh, gaslighting and intimidation and uh, um, and so on, which seems to be very widespread. The second is the entrapment of victims by psychological um, uh, gaslighting or by financial insecurity, concerns about children, twisted love for the abuser. That gets very dark in a lot of ways. The third is this high-tech coercive control to which I referred. You know, for months, my intimate friend informed me, she felt she watched everywhere she went, her phone tapped, her emails monitored, I found it's very hard to believe. Then I read the following paragraph in his book on page 33. Some abusers do an impressive job of being all-knowing. They know which website she's visiting, who she's calling, the exact route she takes to work each day. Assuming godlike powers these days is easy, they can be purchased online. One popular phone app costs less than $300 per year and once installed doesn't show up on the home screen so the user can't see it. With this single app, the abuser gains remote access to that phone's text messages, call log, Photos, emails, contacts and browsing history. They can even block numbers for inbound and outbound calls and delete everything on the phone remotely. The victim's phone becomes a tracking device thanks to its inbuilt GPS. A stalker can sit at the computer and watch her move from one place to another on a street map. This is a nightmare scenario. I mean, it's exactly what my intimate friend had been reporting and, and here's will telling me this happens and it's mm. high-tech. It's it.
0: mm.
1: um, there's a fourth Disturbing conclusion, and, and it's one that was particularly revolting to me, given my sensibility. And as, as a man who, you know, to be honest, rejects pornography as such, as distinct from the sublime and the erotic, which are different, I was horrified by Hill's account of pages 166 to sorry, 146 to 48 of the rise and spread of hardcore porn in this century. It's been called gonzo porn, and it involves the abuse, degradation, and physical assault on women. I think this whole scene is is appalling and criminal. The Gonzo point is now endemic, it's being watched by boys from the age of 13, it coincides with a surge of sexual violence and a collapse in even basic civilized norms regarding consensual and loving sexual intimacy, it's sickening. I should add that several months ago my intimate friend informed me that her partner, and I quote, awakes at dawn and takes privileges that you should not want. I wrote a poem in response called Sorted Privileges and I've worried about his behaviour towards her ever since.
0: It's, uh, it's chilling stuff. Um, it's chilling stuff, Paul. Now, the Me Too movement—they've uh, become involved in this. How have they begun to tackle the problem in Australia?
1: Well, um, uh, he actually begins uh, her um, her quarterly essay with stories of sexual assault, rape, and gross behaviour in the nation's parliament, supported in March 2021, and Scott Malton being hounded by the Me Too movement to respond. The ring conclusion right there is, here's what men like Scott Morrison don't understand. Political spin has no power against the rage unleashed by MeToo. The cultural revolution of MeToo is not just about sexual violence. It is taking aim at patriarchy's most sacred compact, the keeping of men's secrets. And, And let me comment that this confronts me with an excruciating problem because my intimate friend has confided in me about being coercively controlled, threatened, assaulted, raped, left pregnant as a result of that rape, but has written to me, quote, what happened here behind closed doors can't be litigated and can't be written. She refuses to have an abortion, refuses to leave her abusive partner, refuses to call him out, and begs me to accept the situation. All this in recent weeks, hence this cautious conversation.
0: Mm, very, 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 very um, sobering. Now, you're a, an ageing, educated white male, as you would uh, describe yourself, and others would. Paul, where do you see yourself in all this? Is, as as all of us men would be reading this and becoming aware of this, and then positioning ourselves somewhere. What about yourself?
1: Well, uh, as your listeners will gather, I feel as though I'm in, in the thick of it for personal reasons now, um, and yet on the margins of social ones. You might say awakened but not woke. <laughs> I'm not part of the problem. You know, I'm quite clear about that, but I'm not sure how to be part of the solution. Now he makes clear a lot of the violence occurs in parts of the, of Australian society with which I'm wholly unacquainted. She. She described in great detail some of the outback settings and like the town of Burke in Western New South Wales, um, where there were shocking problems. It was actually one of the most crime-ridden cities in the world until a few years ago, when, to their great credit, city authorities started to take imaginative initiatives, and they've they've made considerable ground. It's a very interesting part of her story, um, but the the, the challenge uh, to me as an individual, of course, is. is in one sense, of course, to try to find a way to deal with the personal issue that I've been confronted with. But in the process, I think I'm going to be reaching out to a few people who are more deeply immersed in this than me and possibly including Jesse Hill.
0: Mm, interesting. And finally, as Paul, as time gets by, how can a psychology of abuse and control be systemically tackled? Obviously, you were looking at it from a personal side yourself there, but more systemically, what can we do?
1: Well, to be honest, I'm not sure... Um, that the problem can be rooted out. There's so many factors generating it, even Hill in the final chapter of her book, of having a crushing sense of futility, but her anger and passion are palpable and she's lit up the landscape for me and I notice complacency and cynicism are no longer uh, you know options. But, and also because of how the problem is intruded right into my personal life, but Hill declares that the Victorian state government has set up world-leading programs since 2015 and there is, in fact, since 2010, a national plan to reduce violence against women and children. It's just that its goals have been too vague and such violence continues to increase. So we need to do more and better. And she gives examples of what's been happening in in various localities around the world, most notably in High Point, North Carolina, where a city hall-driven law enforcement program that brought together social workers, police, uh, lawyers, etc., uh, took constructive actions that have halved domestic homicides in that city over time uh, and also have seen recidivism, which in cities that have such problems, which is many of them, uh, normally sits about 35 to 64% has dropped in high point to 16%. So they've made a real measurable impact. And she concludes by pointing out that similar things are being achieved in Burke against all the odds. So things can be done and, and hers is a rallying cry to action and because i've been drawn into this personally I, i'm inspired by this bigger picture she's painted and i think we need to be more active and she her final line of her book is revolutions are impossible until they're inevitable and uh let's make it inevitable shall we
0: Absolutely. Paul, and that's a good note to finish on. Well, look, that's a very um, challenging and disturbing uh, topic to talk about, but it's one that needs to be brought out of the open more and more. Jess Hill's work has been great, and and, and thank you so much for bringing it to the attention of, of, of our listeners because it's one that we need to get our heads out of the sand on and do something about. Yes, well,
1: taking the opportunity to uh, to vent, as it were, you know, I yes. I it because, as I made plain in the interview, uh, I feel drawn into it now against my will. I, I wish it wasn't so, but uh, mm. I've had to grapple with this, and I've learned a lot very quickly, and uh, so I'm uh, I'm prepared to get on the barricades on this issue.
0: Mm, absolutely and congratulations on it, well, it was Paul Monk, uh, author, speaker, workshop, facilitate uh, Talking on domestic abuse and coercive control We'll take a short break, listeners, don't go away You've been listening to the Viewpoints Podcast Hosted by Henry Grosick and produced by Rob Kelly If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review And rate us via Apple Podcasts